famous. Oh, you did, you see this problem? You don't even read anything, right? We have an ayan and we have an ayan. You don't get it, do you? Depends how, depends how he feels. You know, what's up? I'm going to change your name to Boy Ayan. Boy Ayan. That's the only way. Alright, folks. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. Allahumma salli wa sallim wa baraka al-Nabina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in. Allahumma la sahla illa ma ja'altahu sahla wa anta tajlul hazna idha shi'la sahla. Allahumma a'inna la zikrika wa shukrika wa husna ibadatik. Ya Rabbil Kareem. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh everybody. Uh, right, so number one, I apologize again to everybody online, I guess even here, I guess, yani, although it's not that bad here, but certainly uh, online it's very dark and that's because they did this over again with the lights exactly like last time. I'm starting to really go off this hotel, yani, the way they treat us, honestly. Um, although, strangely, they, even though they try to blag that we've got no booking or whatever, the AC is on, which shows that they do know there's a booking. But the lights, the last time we did this lesson, about a few weeks ago, the AC wasn't on either. It was boiling in here, it was dark, it was missions, bro. But alhamdulillah, we got through it. Um, but anyway, alhamdulillah, we take it because we're in Makkatul Mukarramah, Sharrafah Allah. And um, that's always a blessing, and to be in the best of places, even if we might not be in the best of preparations and situations all right so um let's uh, and also i know that you guys don't uh or you find that the acoustics on the uh um on the audio is not great that's because you guys are used to crystal clear what's it called blue blue snowball or whatever it is that uh shazad normally uses which i can't carry around him there's a massive huge mic that big so we have to go via the phone one and the phone one obviously is like about a meter back and it picks up all of you folks and it echoes and blah, blah, blah. So <laughs> Solange thinks that you guys have got the mic. She goes, can the mic not be moved away from the audience? Like as if they've got it, bro. The audience are miles away, bro. What it's the fact, is, huh? Yeah, well, uh, this is what we said that uh, actually Shazad will transplant the audio. I have a, the, the podcast audio will be uh, obviously uh, crystal clear because I have it, the mic here, but it's not connected to the uh, phone. Anyway, anyway. Yeah, because, yeah, anyway, never mind. They're not happy with the sound. What can we do, bro? Allah mustan, Allah mustan. Um, so uh, today, what we're going to be covering is the last part of the, of the, um, uh, of the last part of maybe three sessions that we've spent on the issue of women um, coming to the masjid and then moving on to the new, uh, the new part, okay? The new part. So the end part, If a woman seeks permission to go to the mosque, it is reprehensible, it is disliked to prevent her. However, her house is better for her. However, her house is better for her. So this whole kind of uh, discussion, we spoke a lot about it. We even brought up, yani, what's his name, Mr. Tate himself and all of his... Uh, the recent statements about, um, well, I don't know about their recent or not, but you know, all of it, the way that he was speaking about what happens when a woman goes outside, blah, blah, blah. And we just, we just looked at it from all different angles. You know, 
how people discuss that issue, uh, misogynists uh, discuss that issue, how feminists see that issue, and, 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 and. And I spoke about my own personal opinion that most of the ahadith, if not all of the ahadith that, that, that indicate that the prayer is better for the women at home, that this increase in the text is a weak increase. That there's no doubt that the Prophet um, has clearly indicated that a woman is to also pray in a masjid. Firstly, the text states it. The text makes it very, very clear that the, uh, the position of uh, a woman is that she's not to be prevented from going when she wants to go to uh, the masjid. Well, that's as clear as it comes. And we have so many surround, uh, supporting evidences. Aisha radiallahu anha describing to us what used to happen at Fajr. So many of the female companions discussing about, you know, the, their going to the prayer. What we saw with the uh, Bilal, the son of uh, Abdullah ibn Umar, when he uh, said, Wallahi, I'm going to. And there's, there's chairs all over the place, by the way. There's, they're here and everywhere. No, no, bro, don't do that. Yeah, then we're all going to have to sit down on the floor like a bunch of pandas, isn't it? Right? So, so um, uh, uh, Bilal, in that very famous uh, incident, he goes, Wallahi, I'm going to prevent my wife from going to the masjid. Right? And Abdullah bin Umar just completely lost his mind. Yeah? And he became so angry at his son that the narrator, I think I covered this last week, I think, that the narrator of the hadith says that I, Wallahi, never saw him ever get so angry and curse someone so much as he did. This is Abdullah ibn Umar bin Khattab to his son. He goes, I say to you that the Messenger of Allah وسلم, said, do not prevent the female servants of Allah going to the masjid. Then you say to me, wallahi, I'm going to prevent, right? You know, that whole kind of macho, izzat, yani, I'm going to protect my wife kind of, you know, uh, I know better kind of thing. And he boycotted him and it was like a serious incident. Well, the famous story of Umar radiallahu an. You know, uh, with um, with Atika, and uh, you know her wanting to go to the masjid, and uh, him not being happy about it. And we spoke about this, and I spoke about this last week. You know that no man is happy with this idea, and no man is actually happy at all when his wife goes out. We split, went into the the gender thing, the thoughts, and whatever, and that uh, this kind of uh, this kind of dynamic between a woman going out, having to go out, whether she whatever she does go out, and the issues of permission is a dynamic that every married couple has to deal with that is clear that what used to be the way and what also can be the way but also um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for that um, uh, the majority of last week's lesson was effectively discussing the problem of if a man is going to put his foot down and insist that this is the way that life is going to be and he has that right it's going to come and bite him in the backside nobody else and, you know, if you're going to reduce your wife's reality to a permission-based game, uh, cheap, get, get about four or five chairs, yeah, from in here, yeah? They're just in here. I don't think there's, just cut in here, yeah. Yeah, yeah, go in there. They're all here, chief. Yeah, just grab, grab put four or five down for these girls here. Um, so, um, then the situation gets messed up. Now, having said that, um, we do want to just cover and finish off this thing completely that if a woman is to go so, so f first of all the hadith does make it clear that a woman who uh, goes to, wants to go to anywhere else other than a masjid technically does need to seek permission and that's because 
um, of the authority and whatever. And again, I, you got, most of you guys who were not part of last week's lesson will need to go back and review last week's lesson to see the context of all of this discussion. When a woman does go to the masjid and you know, she's made that request upon the, the, the husband, the husband can't prevent her except in a few situations. And we spoke about that as well, that it can't be made too subjective because one of the ones that the scholars mentioned is this idea that um, you know, uh, if a woman, uh, if a man thinks that there's going to be fitna, that there's going to be some kind of danger, that there's going to be some kind of issues. So in that scenario, there might actually be a real threat. There might actually be, you know, some kind of real problem. But what's got to happen is that there's got to be some kind of objective proof as well. It can't just be, uh, I don't think it's safe for you. There's got to be some kind of uh, uh, process and there's got to be some kind of precedent that there is going to be a problem or that there will be a problem. Yeah? Um, a much more easier metric to measure is if the woman is doing something which is impermissible. So the hadith mentions that the Prophet ﷺ actually said in some ver versions of this hadith that when they go out, then let them go out tafilat. Now tafilat, I translated last week as what? I, I said demure and I think the, the ladies and the men kind of uh, were differing over how they want to, what kind of word they want to use. Uh, downplay, when you downplay your appearance. I don't know how, I don't know, I, I can't remember what word we, yeah, Maisa said we use downplayed. But, um, was downplayed a nice way, way? I thought demure was a really nice word, but they're not, like they, they said demure means shy and modest and things like that. But there's no doubt a woman always when she's outside has to be modest. There's no doubt about that. But what I mean is that she's not kind of, you know, partied up. Her clothes are not the party clothes, bringing attention to herself, makeup, shoes, this, that, blah, blah, blah. She's not going out to a wedding. She's going to out for salah. She needs to be in that salah kind of uh, mode, salah zone, looks like it. That's a physical, uh, that's the visual aspect. Then there's the perfumed one, which is actually a very specific aspect of tafilat, meaning that she is not perfumed. We have some narrations, for example, um, here the Prophet وسلم, uh, said that any woman, and this is at the bottom of 203, that if a woman has been, um, uh, uh, what's the uh, yani? she's, been, uh, she's been touched, touched by bukhur, uh, meaning that, it you know, bukhur is an incense, yeah? And, you know, whatever that's, I mean, you know, it's tiny particles, isn't it, right? And when it's in its heated form and it lands on you, then it's just emanating. So if she's in that area, anyone who's in that area and it's been at home, for example, then, uh, and it's, it falls on you, then it's going to emanate. So anybody that's been touched by Bukhur, or any woman, sorry, that's been touched by Bukhur, فَلَا تَشْهَدْ مَعْنَا Salatul Isha. Let her not come to the Isha prayer. And this hadith is narrated in Sahih Muslim. Right? Now, this is just one. Honestly, there are so many hadith that speak about the perfumed nature of a woman. Right? And um, it, you see, discussing this becomes difficult if you don't take into, if you don't, if you can't uh, 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 accept that a woman is intrinsically sexualized just like she is intrinsically sexualized. Therefore, any single thing that accentuates that becomes a bigger problem, right? And scent is, a scent on a child 
scent on a man and scent on a woman are three entire different paradigms. It could be the same scent, especially in modern times where we're talking about unisex, unisex perfumes, right? Let alone something which is very specifically kind of sexual with pheromones and all the rest of it. Just put all that aside, just general scent. Um, and, I'd also, and I'd also say something that I don't think it's random that the Prophet ﷺ said Salatul Isha as well. So darkness and quiet and opportunity and all of this, uh, you know, everything. Shaitan plays on everything, right? Shaitan, you know, plays the game, um, taking advantage, finding excuses, finding, you know, reasons where people can't be seen so well. And obviously darkness back in the day really was a proper darkness. There's no street lights. There's no, you know, bright flash kind of, you know, floodlights. Everything is actually really struggling to be seen. So you start putting all that in and smells and let the mind yani, go with you know, imagination. And I want you to, uh, uh, by the way, I want you to know that the majority of these women were wearing niqab. And I mean, when I say niqab, I mean niqab of like the way that Abdullah ibn Abbas, only one eye showing. So you know the burqa, you know, like you see these Saudi kind of women, that is, and people think like that's the way. Actually, the Afghani type Taliban style, style uh, 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 niqab that you see, which has got this burqa kind of... Uh, uh, or burqa as they call it, I guess, yeah, right? That kind of uh, uh, name or title is closer to what would have been worn back then than like the stylish black version kind of now, right? Just as a, as a, as a, as a heads up. So I want you to imagine that, I mean, what else is my girl going to do, right? She covers herself in that level. She goes out at the darkness of the flipping night. Nobody can see anything, even that one eye that is probably not being seen. And the, 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 the threat is still there to both man and woman. I mean, just being covered completely doesn't prevent her thinking, seeing, looking, etc. She's the most covered and got the most opportunity to look everywhere and do what she wants anyway, right? So there's like a, there's clearly more to it than 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 just the rules. There's that there, there is here, um, there is here this kind of this idea that you know a person really can't be an uh, you can't sleep on this issue. You can't sleep on this issue. You've got to be aware that this is a problem, that a person needs to be responsible and the like. The next thing is um, the issue of uh, that I want to say is, okay, well, what about then scent? Uh, uh, in the age or the day where there is deodorants and antiperspirants and fabric conditioners and things like that, to what level do we go? And this is tough, actually. This is tough to try to, 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 to give a ruling on. Um, a deodorant's easy, all right, because even now you look at impulse adverts, uh, Lynx adverts, they are sexualized per, uh, uh, perfumes. And a deodorant is not an antiperspirant. An antiperspirant, which is something which is actually actively uh, uh, combating perspiration and therefore that then becoming infected, quote-unquote, and it then smelling body odor, etc., is a legitimate thing to use, permissible thing to use, and even those which are unscented, that have a scent, this is not what we consider to be perfume. If people are being yeah, they're driven crazy by that, then we've got bigger problems, right? But there has to be a line that is drawn. Now, the fabric conditioner argument, I would also put into that category, right? Um, it's actually a very relevant question, not just in this chapter, but to us. There were, there were a couple of sisters, actually, that contacted me uh, before we left for this current Umrah program, saying that they'd already done their washing, 
you know, their Umrah washing in part your prep plan, right? And they had already said, this is my travel abayas and these are my Umrah abayas. And I can clearly smell the difference between the two, like they've been folded up and, you know, obviously if you wash something dry and fold it up very quickly, it re retains that condition of smell quite strongly. And it can actually be quite, you know, emanating still. I mean, it's not as emanating as others, but, you know, when you put it on, everybody loves that fresh smell. And it's this, it's this point here. At what point does something become perfumed and something just smell fresh and clean, right? Like, I'll give you an example. Those who um, are fortunate enough to have a garden aware and weather good enough to be able to dry their clothes, if you weren't to use fabric conditioner, there's a difference in the smell of the tumble dried version, the internally dried on the radiator version, and that in the garden. It's just a fact. You can literally smell a difference. It's almost like the, the washing powder is accentuated by the fresh air outside somehow, I don't know, yeah? It comes out to life. Same washing powder used for all three. Whether that's because one is actually properly dry and the other one's damp and keeping it in, possibly. That kills the smell? Right. I mean, there's... So, uh, now, when you imagine that we said to a person that you, you can't use fabric conditioner. Let's just say that we said... For, and that, by the way, is a fatwa of some scholars. And I don't think a weird one. I think that there's basis for it. And, they, uh, and I remember reading from some of the, one of the senior scholars of Saudi saying that a, uh, a, a, an ihram that has been washed in fabric conditioner, because it's, different to, because it's different to the idea that the Prophet used to apply perfume directly to himself before he would uh, enter into the state of ihram, which we know is a sunnah and which we know is allowed. And we know that if you... If you but to then go forth, right, there's going to be an impact effect of the, the, the atar or the ud on the actual ihram, right, uh, versus something that you know that the, uh, that the cloth is already like pre-done and is going to smell. It's a different category because sometimes you might not sweat and sometimes your skin might absorb that perfume and it might not all be affected. So there's a big difference something happening like that and something pre-already organized. And he said that that needs to be washed again in water and dried before you put it on so that it's diluted out, that smells diluted out. So this is actually a serious point. And it leads into the issue of the soap, right? When, uh, and you see obviously the, more, the normative position of most scholars is that you're not allowed to use soap in ihram. And, you know, the kind of soap that you see, especially in Muslim countries, is like proper rose soap. Like it comes in a horrible color, horrible artificial stuff. And it literally smells like roses, right? Um, now, some stuff like back in our countries, which is far more, they're not interested in that kind of very intensive smell, but more like a natural smell and probably 10 times the price, but they have got some aqua and perfumes and all the rest of it in. At some point, we have to work, we have to be confident enough to say, sorry, this is not perfume. Nobody goes out there and gets soap and rubs it on themselves and says, right, you know, hopefully that will... Uh, smell and to strengthen this argument we do have for example aquidigio soap which is sold and hugo boss soap which is sold which is basically soap but it has got a dash of actual perfume oud whatever and it's like 20 quid a bar versus two quid a bar so we know when a soap is trying to be a perfume and we know when soap is just trying to smell clean and i think that we have to adopt this second position and that's why i personally believe that if a person uses soap even scented in ihram 
they have not broken the rules of ihram. However, because I don't want that culture to become dominant, and because there's such a majority of scholars on the other sides, on the other side that saying no way you can't take a risk. From a practical point of view, I just assume to the folks that listen, don't use soap and avoid the soap, and we just go with it. Even though my heart personally is not of that position. So when it comes to women, I think it's allowed for them to use when they're going outside, not just unscented um, deodorant, because unscented doesn't have a smell anyway, but I think, deo uh, uh, not deodorant, sorry, antiperspirant, but antiperspirant fresh, antiperspirant active, antiperspirant dry, you know, all these kind of types that you get, and they all definitely have some kind of perfume smell, but I don't consider that to be perfumed. So I don't think that's contradicting tafilat. Uh, about thing, no, I said that I believe the same thing about fabric conditioner. Harvest, they're called. Blossom is called. It's like at, at some point. What I want to say is that you're either all in or you're all out. If I'm going to be saying you can use a antiperspirant, that I think soap is allowed, then on what basis am I going to pull back on the on the fabric conditioner? Even though I do recognize that it has a strong dominant smell. No, so, so when I say no to soap, I mean that from a, from a, from a point of view that, um, that uh, 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 if I, like, like, how can I say this? The people and the scholars haven't quite cottoned onto the fabric conditioner thing. And I think we're going to start to see now that kind of blow up. And no, no, it's not even that. It's not even that. There is, obviously. But what I'm saying is that this question is only starting anew, right? The fabric conditioner thing. The soap one, the debate has been going on for a good few years. And the majority of the Muslims and the scholars have decided to settle down and double down on the idea you can't be using soap because it's all perfumed. Would you say soap, a washing powder is a soap, for example? A washing powder is a soap that is... How far back do you go? That's also a, a, an important point. If you keep on taking this back, <laughs> and not only not shower for a week, but have to get yani, clothes that have been, I don't know, uh, ihrams dry cleaned in some kind of, you know, God knows what, and it starts getting crazy. And that's why at some point, people have just got to say that there is a spirit of the law here and a letter of the law here, and the spirit of the law is focusing on what everybody would clearly say, I'm going to shop to buy a perfume to put on myself that I can be attractive. You know what I'm saying? Versus that which smells nice. And I think that we can confidently convince ourselves that there's a difference between that which smells nice and that which is an actual perfume. And once we are able to say that, then the whole situation becomes easy. Then we are right with the fabric conditioner and the X and the Y and so on. Um, and, you know, questions, this, 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 I mean, I don't want to make this all about ihram and whatever, but there's folks talking about sunscreen and sunscreen, uh, sun, sun cream and, and sunscreen and moisturizing creams and whatever, we know that different ones have very distinctive smells, right? And some of those can become quite, you know, comfortable. Like, uh, what's that uh, cocoa butter called? Uh, the, you know, uh, thingy. Uh, what's that cocoa butter called? No, but that brand. Shea butter, but there's a brand. What's it called? Browns. Browns. Halmers. Is that the one? No, I'm talking about the one which is in the, uh, the beige-colored beige colored thingy with the brown uh, whatever. That stuff's lovely, man. Yeah? 
you know what I mean? I wouldn't even have, yeah, I wouldn't even have dry skin under a player, you know what I mean? Like this, yeah? Palmer's, Palmer's cocoa butter, that's the one. Is that what you were saying? Oh, right, sorry, sorry, okay, okay. okay. She only said, that's a lovely smell. Oh, it's a lovely smell, no? It's a lovely smell. So anyway, yeah. <laughs> but my point is, is that there are smells out there. Now, at what point do you say that, you know, this is like too much? It's like, you, you can't, right? Now, if you look at the ingredient, ingredients, it has added perfume. Aqua, have you looked at aqua during patch testing and stuff? Yeah, but all of them have half an ingredient, Yeah. What's the actual definition of aqua? Well, aqua is just a water component within a cream. But no, it's a perfumed water component. I don't think aqua can be perfumed itself. Aqua, what, what you think aqua is water? Yeah. yeah. Aqua is just straight water. Within the product, yeah. Yes. And the aqua refers to that bit. But the aqua is a Danish European. It's a what? <laughs> so it's just, you're saying it has nothing to do with the perfume? The perfume is a separate component. That's why people who have fragrance allergies yeah. have to specifically look for the word parfum, not just the not, uh, not aqua. Why did I think that aqua itself was more than just water or the liquid component? I don't know. Anyway, whatever. The point is, is that uh, um, we have to, you know, uh, keep that um, um, in mind. Anyway, Sheikh says, uh, just to finish this off, um, that it is permissible for the guardian, guardian being if she's not married, father, etc., uh, or the brother, whatever, who has got responsibility to look after her, and when she's married and her husband, that if she is not dressed properly or she is um, uh, got perfume on, etc., then even she can't go to the masjid. In actual fact, not only can she not, uh, shouldn't she shouldn't go. It is haram for a man to willfully allow his wife, whatever, blah, 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 to go to that masjid, because that is a direct contravention of the hadith of the Prophet Sallallahu um, and, and of course, Shaykh Uthameen, like all the scholars I know, pretty much all the scholars I know, consider that the, the, the prayer of the woman in the house to be better for her because of the, so many hadith that indicate it. And as I said, I don't think that necessarily this is a, uh, a fact in of itself. I think that it is a fact only when there is a supporting thing behind it, i.e. she stays behind because she thinks that something's going to happen. She stays behind because the kids need to be looked after. She stays behind because her husband prefers. But if there was zero reason for a woman to stay at home to pray, and like, you know, there was no fitness in the area, there was not even anyone around in the area, and there was an option, you know, she could go to the masjid, and there's no distances involved, there's no risks involved, whatever, whatnot. I cannot defend that a woman's prayer is better for her at home because I do not believe the hadith are authentic enough. Now, if the hadith are authentic enough, then what the hadith is saying is that even if there was zero fitna, then the reward for the prayer at home is better. Now, as I said, that's the position of the vast majority of scholars because the scholars accept the, uh, the, the, uh, the hadith to be authentic. So now there are exceptions to this, of course. Um, there are certain prayers like the Eid prayer, the Eid prayer being the, the best example in which everybody is to come out. Not just everybody, but even those women who are not praying, they come out. And that is to, to, to observe the khutbah. But Sheikh says also, even in this situation, even in this situation, um, if a woman's coming out in clothes, 
that are going to cause fitna and there's going to be you know lots of whatever behavior which is not becoming then even that's not good in uh, 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 for that to happen okay so now we start actually quite a significant section um, are there any questions online and uh, Mesa if you can uh, post the uh, text not Mesa Shazad if he's uh, with us um, then uh, post the, uh, the Arabic and the English of the new text. Anyone have any clarification uh, on this? Uh, so that we move on, I don't want to come back uh, uh, to this uh, separately. Salam uh, hating uh, on pharmacists as usual. Um, I wonder if there's consideration for cases where women are going to huge mosques like in North America, where you get out of your car to a huge parking lot and completely different entrances to the men, no contact whatsoever. I absolutely think that there is uh, that to be considered. I think that, that when the, uh, I mean, imagine what Widad is saying, right? That is the case for so many, I mean, most of, well, I mean, obviously you guys, the Canadian contingent, but I mean in the UK, uh, our mosques are much smaller, much more together, and um, you wouldn't think of any woman being able to do that. Whereas in an American situation where they're absolutely huge and different uh, whole sections and big car parks and separate entrances, where's all this fitness aspect coming from? You get what I'm saying? And so... <laughs> the chief has spoken. The chief <laughs> he adds, just to be politically correct. Yeah, you're such a top... By the way, chief, I, I heard recently in the voting for top husband of, of 2022, you're there, bro. MashaAllah. We take it. We take it. So... Um, uh, I think that... Uh, um, uh, I, I, from my point of view... I told you that for over the last couple of weeks we've been speaking about this subject, that I have another, I have more skin in this game because of the divorce rates, okay? I told you that I am convinced that our attitude to masajid for women has left them being less developed than their male, count, male counterparts, iman-wise. And they're not getting the reminders, they're not getting the buzz, they're not getting the, the whatever. And, you know, there's got to be some value to that. There's got to be some value to that. And that's the, the point that's being made. All right? Alaikum salam wa So, um, yeah. Um, so, when you're like on the way to the masjid or say it's tomorrow or Eid or something, and they put butter on your hands or something, and that rubs against your clothes because butter is meant to like smell nice. Right. Then, how does that work then? If it like rubs against your clothes because then the clothes will start to smell nice as well. You're talking about in a, a normal time. Oh, you mean for yeah. a woman? I mean, obviously, I, 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 well, first of all, women shouldn't be doing that, right? That's not something which is acceptable for a woman to be putting, you know, her, uh, first of all, offering smells to a woman when going into the masjid or outside, let alone, yani, when, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, her accepting it as well. So neither of that should happen. But if it happened by mistake, as you're saying, which is like got rubbed with X, Y, Z, that's something different. That's not, you can't control that. You can't yeah, any, uh, deal with something like that. She just needs to be aware of that. Um, and I guess that, that's a reminder of these places here. You know, this now is the big thing now. In Saudi and, and actually the Middle East, perfume has gone through the roof. The profit margins are huge. Uh, the amount of money that's made. And it's the one area that, that, that you can see every business has, has expanded because there's just so much money to make and so easy to make money out of it. So in any case... The um, uh, women got to be careful with that when they are getting, uh, uh, you know, all of this touched upon them, 
then they should be careful, uh, not take, you know, if they've got samples, they keep samples separate from the actual, uh, you know, uh, falling upon their clothes. Okay, um, can you wear perfume? Is it just one or two sprays not to smell bad, but can't be smelled by others? If you are wearing perfume that cannot be smelled by others, that's, that's permissible. That by definition is, is a being applied to the body. And that is possible. But you would have to get someone else to check on that, not yourself. Because the, the person who smells worst is the self. Whether that's a good smell or a bad smell, right? You can't smell your own body odor as much as other people can. And you can't, uh, uh, you can't get a true realization of how much perfume you've used compared to another person. So it's got to be another uh, person. Okay, Muna says, how about in certain societies where everybody smells like they've drenched themselves in perfume? Um, uh, if you're speaking to the women, then that is happening right now and that's where it's got to stop. It's not acceptable. It is completely impermissible to do this. Women have to just become responsible. And it's okay for men though. For men, of course. For men, it's a sunnah. For men, it's a sunnah to actually... In fact, the hadith of the Prophet specifies that the best perfume for men is that which is smelt strongest whereas the and this hadith is kind of confusing and the best perfume of for the women is that which is most colorful right and we don't have a concept called color for perfume and so the scholars really you know they discuss this hadith what does it even mean right because in some versions of this hadith um, uh, uh, there's an added line of commentary from the Prophet which is indicating that it is more beautiful or more, uh, more visual uh, uh, in color or more colorful or more bright in color and less in smell, right? Now, that is clearly not the, not the case in a women-only gathering. In a women's-only gathering, what would that... Yani, some said this is entirely women-only gathering because what would the point be of it being outside, she's not allowed to wear perfume outside anyway. And so inside, this is referring to, you know, Mandy and Henna and this and that, whatever. And never should a woman be smelling that level, even in front of other women. So there's that, I mean, that, I mean, I don't want to open that hadith because that's a deep yani, narration. Because that would then mean a whole different, you know, understanding for the entire women's scent market. Um, but it can't, it can't mean that women can't wear scent at all because we know that the Salaf used to do that. We know that's allowed for one's husband, etc., etc., etc. So, but in principle, a woman is, able, is allowed to put that on which she can smell and other folks uh, don't smell. Uh, Wallahu alam. All right. Uh, where are we? Yeah, yeah, go on. Yeah, yeah. What's the argument between my intention as a woman mm -hmm. to So yeah, we covered this in the last couple of lessons, this whole issue of personal responsibility, and that is the answer. Everybody has personal responsibility. So there's, there's, there's a big difference between protecting yourself from smelling bad and uh, going into an area or, uh, and crossing the line over to that which the Prophet has said you shouldn't, versus, uh, and that's her personal responsibility. And she's allowed to use those products to do that. Like we said, antiperspirants. And we've also said not just antiperspirants that have zero smell, but even antiperspirants that have a smell and a nice smell, like fresh, like, you know what I mean when I say fresh, and mm -hmm. different types, energy and active and whatever they call them, right? And that has a pleasant smell because that, I mean, by the way, there are some scholars that said you can't have that because that is perfume. 
And then we go back to that whole discussion, what is the exact definition of perfume? And we could debate that until the cows come home. But the point is, is that there is a certain level where, where a woman is allowed to have just a normative, fresh, clean smell. Of course she is. And the level where it starts to become stronger, emanate and bring attention to oneself is the cutoff point. As for the man, the man is held personally responsible for everything that he sees and feels and hears and reacts, regardless of what the woman smells like or not, whether she has no perfume on or she has all the perfume on. There is no contradiction here at all. And that's why it's so weird that this discussion happens in, often in the media and you know, where people take this point up about personal responsibility. I don't understand the debate. A woman is responsible for her stuff and a man is responsible for his. It doesn't matter what a woman does which is haram or halal or not, a man will be uh, held fully accountable for his actions and vice versa, and vice versa. Now, from a legality's point of view, that's something else, what a judge uses in order to determine uh, cases and whatever, but from a sin point of view, it's as easy as pie when a woman is sinful and a man is sinful, and that's the, that's the end of it. All right, anyway, I just want everyone to bear witness, such as Ad Salim, he bunks, bunks lessons, he was told very specifically to be here online. Yeah, he's put too much perfume. Yeah. By the way, do you guys know how Shazad uh, Salim, can I just tell you, Shazad Salim goes through a bottle of perfume every three days, okay? When he goes, huh? There's everything wrong with that. Let me tell you something. Uh, listen to something. I haven't even started. Haven't even started. Let me tell you how Shazad Salim puts perfume on, right? He gets both. At least 30, kind of, he's got like a trigger finger. He's not here. It's not my fault, is it? He's going to be here to bring the text. I sent him the text. It's on my phone now. How am I going to find the text? Did I tell him that he's got to put the text on? Oh, you know what? I didn't, actually. Okay, okay. Oh, sorry. I've got the text. Guys, I've got the text. It's here. It's here. I didn't send it to him. Huh? Right. Let's get back to Zed Salim. That's because I didn't send him the text. Gives no reason not to cuss Zed Salim. He uses perfume like, not like it was water, because I've seen people more sparing with water than I've seen Zed Salim with perfume. Why are we speaking about Shazad Salim for? No, no, after this is it. Okay, all right. We'll, we'll, we'll leave him now. All right. This, that, absolutely, 100%. What? To kill... Allah. <laughs> Listen, Sheikh Muhammad Mani enters the room and tries to justify that because the Prophet ﷺ said in the weak hadith, by the way, the weak hadith, by the way, tell that to the folks in California, that what was beloved, made beloved to me, come on, finish the hadith, all the women them, all of the perfume that you think. The Prophet ﷺ loved women, not through this hadith, and loved women, not through this hadith, loved perfume, not through this hadith. Somehow, you think that it's allowed to pour half the bottle on yourself, huh? Is that what the hadith says? <laughs> oh my goodness. You best come and bring your A-game, bro. So, um, uh, the, uh, uh, the chapter that we're covering now, because uh, uh, the, uh, the chapter is the, the bigger chapter is the jama'ah, meaning the congregation, the, the author, and this is generally the way in fiqh, when they, when they cover the prayer, they cover the conditions of the prayer, and then every aspect of the prayer, then they take the prayer to the mosque, okay? The mosque and all the rules of the congregation that happens, then they start describing the character and the, characteristic, the characteristics and the requirements of who should lead the prayer, the Imam. So this is the chapter of the Imam. Have we made them pray over there? Yes. And I, I, that's not good, is it? Miskin. I feel. Did you say that to them? 
we miss you, Chief. Right, so, um, so this is the chapter I'm going to just read uh, uh, some of the Arabic and then the translation for it. So, uh, subsection or subchapter. الأولى بالإمامة الأقرأ العالم في قصلاته ثم الأفقه ثم الأسن ثم الأشرف ثم الأقدم حجرة ثم الأتقى ثم من قرأ. Alright, that's the. Ah, there we go. How long? How many hours later? How many hours? Our booking was one hour ago, right? And and we've had to do that in. Nine thirty was the booking. Uh, what time is it now? It's, it's 25, 25 to 11. Twenty-five to eleven. Ah, anyway, all right. The most versed in the Quran. Knowledgeable of the fiqh. Oh, yeah, what's wow. happening here? <laughs> and he basically said, right. He basically, the guy heard what we said. He goes, oh, right, so if you're not going to be thankful, then bun you. That's basically, that's basically what my guy has said. He's just watching the whole thing online. He goes, huh, that's what you want? Now check it out. <laughs> right. So, uh, the most versed in the Quran, knowledgeable of the fiqh of his prayer, and that's all one. Yani, uh, part. It's the first part. Then the most erudite of them in jurisprudence, the most knowledgeable of them in fiqh. Okay? Number three, then the eldest. Number four, then the most noble, ashraf. Okay? And here the word ashraf, as I'm going to explain, I don't know if we get to it today, is more than just noble. It's actually starting to get into the issue of uh, lineage and um, tribes and a bit of that kind of behavior. Then the one who migrated first, and I'm going to have an interesting discussion on that. Then the one with most taqwa. Then whoever is chosen by lots. Qara. Basically, ini, mini, mini, mo. Any kind of random process. All right? So this according to the Hanbali school, and this is not agreed upon, but in general, according to the Hanabila, this is the set of priorities that you go through when you're looking for the very best person to lead the salah. Why does why we why are we even having this discussion? Why do we need to you know have so many prerequisites and, and conditions uh, to uh, have someone lead the prayer? Because this is our representative. The Imam is Amamun Nas. All right. The Imam is in front of the people, representing them. He is the leader. He is the one that we put all our hopes and our trust in when they're leading us in the salah, connecting us to Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala. I mean, the Imam is everything. And that's why we said that, you know, for a person to be happy with their imam is a very important, uh, um, a very uh, uh, important uh, thing to take seriously. Not, it shouldn't be taken lightly. And we see a hadith in which the Prophet ﷺ said that the people who are not happy with their imam, then, 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 you know that actually a person should step down from the position if the folks behind them have got a bad feeling about them. All right. I'm hoping in my lifetime I can convert all these people to think like that when so they sleaze the salah. But the problem is, is that you Pakisi and you love the guy. All right? I mean, did you even hear his isha and the... Sheikh Mayakid, take the mic, Yara, come on. <laughs> Hold that guy down. Honestly, 
honestly, you know, I sometimes think to myself that, that, that you know, there are, people got to know that, that leading the salah is more... Let's, there, let's not do that. Okay, then, we need to come back in. We need to come back. He's a big man now as well. He's not like, you know, some chamcha uh, imam like the rest of them. Like some, you know, some bandar balila, yeah? He's, you know, you know what I mean? He is like, you know, head of the two, God knows what, bloody blah, head of this, that I think promoted recently. Okay, khalas, khalas, all right. So, mashallah, jazallah khair, imam of the Muslims. So the, the, the point is, is that you've got to have confidence in your guy. He's representing you and, and uh, everything starts to matter, everything matters. Other than that, other than just subjective feels, because, you know, th- 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 I fully accept that politics should not come into it and uh, uh, even though, you know, if I make a statement like that, it's not because of subjective politics, it's because of the blood of the people. But when it gets to uh, subjectiveness, that can be argued. What can't be argued about is qualification. person has got to be able to recite the Qur'an properly, correctly, authentically from the Prophet Wasallam, and has got to know what to do if a situation occurs. If a situation occurs, they've got to be able to handle it. They've got to know, you know, what to do in emergency, etc., etc., etc. Okay, so um, with that in mind, let's see what Sheikh Uthameen uh, says on this for the next uh, maybe 10 minutes, and then we'll call it a, we'll take questions and then we'll call it a night. The big question is this word akra, which comes from qira'a, which means recitation. What does akra mean? Now, akra is a, a, a in the wazan or in the form of the most, okay? So the most akra, the most qira'ah, so the most recitation. What does the most recitation here mean? Does it literally mean as, um, uh, as many scholars? In fact, it could be argued the majority, but you'll have the argument go back and forth, who's the majority? That they said it literally means quantity. The one who has the most Qur'an memorized, the most qira'ah, meaning the most, the, the hafiz, basically, right? Is it that person? And they threw lots of arguments out there uh, to support that. Um, we see the Prophet ﷺ here and there choose different companions that were clearly chosen in preference to others because they knew more, okay? The most, um, or one of the strongest evidences for this is the, the, hadith, the actual hadith itself. This hadith in Sahih Muslim, let the one who is most akra of you lead you. Then the hadith says, Right? Then the most knowledgeable of you in the sunnah. It could be argued that that takes out then the translation of most versed. That takes it out. Because if I, if I translate as most versed, as, I, as, I, as I've indicated previously, Versed indicates scholarliness, knowledge about the Qur'an, understanding it, etc. Um, I kind of use it to kind of blag it, to vague it, yani, so that people, when they see versed, they're still thinking, what does he mean by verse? Just like if you said it in Arabic, what does he mean by akra? To kind of blag the situation. But um, if you are translating akra as the most knowledgeable of the Qur'an, then the fact that the next statement by the Prophet ﷺ in the hadith, because these, these lists are taken from a hadith, that let the one who is most versed lead you in the prayer, and then the one who is most knowledgeable of you in the prayer, then the one who is older than you in the prayer in some narrations, then the one who has done the hijrah first in the prayer. So you've got, you've got uh, uh, done hijrah first, yeah, first, and then those who are 
يعني those who are earlier in Islam, right? And the order varies slightly. And so if you just go from a hadith point of view, the fact that the second one says that the sunnah is the second priority, then it would mean that the Qur'an seems to be its own category. So therefore, it should remove verse out of it, and it should focus on then, as what Sheikh Uthameen says, because he only says two opinions. He goes, either it's most qira'a or best qira'a. So it's either hivs on one side, or the one who actually has less hivs but recites it with tajweed properly, mujawid, yani, the one who has perfected the, uh, the excellence of reciting the Qur'an, sounds the nicest, etc., etc. And you're going to have to uh, uh, marry up between these two. And the reason there's a difference in the first place is because you've got these two contradictory situations. Whereas on one hand, as I told you guys uh, in Medina, we spoke about Salim, Mawla Abi Hudayfa, radiallahu an, freed slave, basic guy, and yet Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala honored him, the hadith, the Prophet ﷺ, you know, that, or, or praise be to Allah, who has, you know, that has placed in his ummah someone like you, who after he heard him reciting the Quran, that completely stunned Aisha. Aisha tells the Prophet ﷺ, completely stuns the Prophet ﷺ. He's so happy. He puts him as Imam of Masjid al-Quba, and he leads the, the senior companions. Umar, he's leading. Abu Bakr, he's leading. These are senior yani, people. And... We have the Rawi of the Hadith, and I've forgotten who the Rawi is. I can't remember who the narrator of the Hadith is, and he said that, uh, 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 let him, uh, that he, he says that Salim was the Imam of the Muslims, and Abu Bakr and, and Umar used to pray behind him. That's the key here. He goes that he, was, he had the most Quran. And so this side of the, of the argument say, you see, Therefore, this is clear that when you become an imam and you're chosen as imam and you lead people like Abu Bakr and so on, you're doing it because you know more Qur'an than those folks. Therefore, the Hafiz gets the job regardless. And the others were like, well, hold on. What about when Abu Bakr was chosen to lead the prayer and behind him there were proper huffad like Ubay ibn Ka'ab, Abdullah ibn Mas'ud, Mu'ad ibn Jabal, who are the scholars of the Qur'an. Zayd ibn Thabit, scholars of the Qur'an. Qurra, uh, uh, I mean, they are the ones who are hufad and teach the tajweed, teach the makharij, teach the Quran proper, proper, and he's leading them. Um, this is indicating that it's about knowledge, about authority, about power, about knowing what to do, the the knowing about the verses, and so on. Another argument that was put on that side is that the companions, on the whole, were not people that were obsessed with hivs. That hivs was not their hallmark. Understanding and acting the Qur'an was their hallmark, right? When we see the narrations, if you were to compare the amount of narrations that spoke about them living and acting by the Qur'an versus how much they used to memorize, it's like 10 to 1, right? It's like far more focused on living by it, acting by it, and so on. So this is a difficult discussion, whatever way you decide to go. And the reason why I think it's semantic, honestly, is that if there's someone who's memorized the Qur'an and he can't do the makharij, he's disqualified anyway. I mean, if he's going, you know, uh, and all that kind of you know, behavior, then it's game over. I mean, there's no makhraj there. Uh, obviously, there's no way out that you can make an excuse for that person. So I think that, that's a mute point. But when it comes to, a sheikh makes the point, I'm glad he says the point. He goes, when we talk about tajweed, we're not talking about, you know, uh, because that's just, yeah, any style. And we're not talking about maqamat, and although he doesn't mention that, I, I said that. 
but he says there's no maddat, يعني, you know, uh, mudud. You know, the ones who are elongating and elongating. and You know what it is? Even a very average reciter can make his recitation sound great just by playing with the elongation. Just extending certain words at certain times. Pepper person thinks he's mashallah qari. Yeah? And versus those that have got some kind of uh, a start. We're not talking about that, he said. We're talking about tajweed, ahkam. Those people who are sitting, sticking to the rules. Bam, 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 bam. The point is this is that ultimately we can argue about this, but how can they argue back to us and say that we'll put that person forward versus a person who hasn't got that level of memorization, hasn't got that level of, of niceness of voice, but knows what to do if he breaks his wudu, knows what to do if all the lights go out, knows what to do if the electricity cuts off, knows what to do if someone faints, right? Knows what to do when someone comes late and then is able to solve the issues of the, of the prayer. So... Then they kind of default. The other scholars say, well, of course, the person's got to know what to do. Right? Well, then if a person's got to know what to do, then you're already accepting that that's going to be a, a, a kind of a, kind of a, like a higher uh, 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 priority or, or whatever. I don't know. Um, anyway, uh, by the way, uh, Manish, should I give you thousand salams? Thousand salams. I think that yani, you made him yani, thinking. Although, honestly, he deserves nothing. I'm pretty sure that I told him to post the, the, the translation. Mesa Miskin is desperately trying to post things that, that have got absolutely nothing to do with, with the lesson because she doesn't have the text either. I'm the only person on this planet that's got the text and I'm just blaming everyone else for whatever reason and it's right here and they want me to, they want me to, to, to post it. By the way, I could theoretically post it. In fact, I just did. I forgot that I can actually make comments. Or can I? No, I can't. Okay, I can't, everybody. Before anybody says that I can, I thought I could, I can't. Anyway, um, so, yeah, uh, this, this, this point effectively becomes a moot point. By the way, I just want to say to you, not only did he turn the lights off, he turned the AC off as well. He, pro he proper took us out. You know what it is? You know, and your attacks on the Molvi, the, the Saudi guy. He's proper done us over. Yeah, you just chill there, bro, Suleiman. You just chill, yeah. Uh, in his t-shirt. Look at him, yeah, custom. In his pajamas. Right. Uh, what time is it? All right. I think that's good. I think that we can pause there and we'll take Yanni some questions and, uh, and then we'll call it a day. Before we melt. So there are, there, yeah, so uh, this is good. I'm glad you said this now because obviously we will come and talk about the other, there's more to cover in this obviously. But I'll say this, that there are obvious exceptions. So the, the ruler is in control regardless. When a person has authority in the house, they take precedence even if they're really poor in recitation or poor in their um, knowledge of the Quran. But as long as they're able to get through, get by, you know, there are some scholars that even said that, um, uh, which I found very interesting. They said that actually the imam doesn't need to have any more knowledge about the rulings of the prayer than the normal people. Which I find interesting. They said he's there to represent them in the Quran, not in the knowledge of the prayer. And the argument there is that if, um, uh, uh, because his priority is the Quran and the Qur'an because of the hadith which would, which would support that, the rest of it can be covered by the people. <coughs> Kind of. I mean, uh, uh, that, 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 that this is basic knowledge. Not to, to lead the prayer, not, not to know what to do, to be basic, for example. 
So the problem is, is that obligatory knowledge? I think so, yeah. You think it's obligatory knowledge to know... Uh, which one you said, wudu, breaking the wudu? Yeah, I think breaking the wudu, yeah. What about if you don't know which... Yeah, I think that's where the crux is, exactly that. I think that, Yanni, from your solo prayer and above, where, do, where, like, uh, uh, where is my personal individual responsibility? I, I, the reason what, I, what, what might be different from that an imam would do as compared to somebody praying alone if they're covering the road? The stuff that we were covering last week, you know, the delaying the prayer, for example, right? Uh, you're never going to do that for solo. But, Yanni, you know, are you allowed to delay or not? Whatever. I read a narration today that I haven't heard, by the way. I read a narration today that I didn't cover last week, that I never heard. And I have doubts over its authenticity. But Shaykh Muhammad Mukhtar Shanqiti, just generally in hadith, I mean, is he mutqin, or does he get called out, or what? Mutqin in hadith. When he's normally making sharh and kada, because I don't have much experience of him, obviously you guys do. When he's quoting, he's not, not I, I know, I, the reason I know is that I found quite a few weak hadith that he uses in his sharh too. Zad al-Mustaqni'a. But I'm just wondering whether I've just found those and I'm just getting an opinion in my mind or whatever. Anyway, he mentioned that the Prophet ﷺ would delay the prayer until he couldn't hear any more footsteps. And I have doubt over the authenticity of this hadith. Now, uh, obviously, uh, um, the reason that this hadith uh, uh, caught my eye is that we spoke about this last week, that we're talking about riyah, right? That... Um, we were discussing the different challenges of riyah, uh, uh, and an imam has his own unique set of challenges. And they used to go up to the salaf and the sahaba, and they used to say to them, how, how do you deal with uh, riyah in the prayer? And they said, we don't give the shaitan a chance yani, for riyah to come. We, we make the prayer very quick. And this used to be the sunnah of the salaf. They used to pray the obligatory prayers so quick that the companions used to be shocked, like an inna atayna kal kind of behavior, and what was that? And they say, and they, was, they were like, we don't let Riyah jump into our prayer. They're like, what, what's going on here? And the idea would be that they were so aware of threats that they would counter it like that. Now, if you take that side of the argument, and then look at the, this hadith, if it's in Sahih hadith, that they are so thinking about other folks that they're waiting for the footstep to stop, I like that answer. I like that. Uh, I, I, there were some scholars that said that this is Zubair and this is his, Yannick, you know, his uh, profile as a person. Except that I've, I've read this from a number of the companions. And in actual fact, I've even read a statement from the Salaf. You know, sometimes, um, like imam, some of the Imams of Tabi'een, they, they make like a general exaggerated statement. You know, like... Uh, um, if there was one thing the companions were known for, it was this, right? So, for example, there's a couple of famous ones like that. So, if there was one thing the companions were known for, it was they would never go into position in prayer until the imam had reached their position. This is a famous one, right? Um, so, that shows that they wait for the imam to go in before they prostrate, yeah? 
The other famous one is that if there was ever one thing that the companions agreed upon, it's the one that, who, who does not pray, he's a kafir. You've heard this statement. That's another famous one. Another one that I've heard is if there's one thing the companions that was known for, that they would be very quick in their prayer, in their public obligatory prayers, which would indicate that quite a few of them were aware of this idea that I don't want too much thinking to be going on. Now, throw a look at the other side. Omar is like, you know what? I'm sorting all my armies out in prayer, right? I'm doing my conquest. I'm in my prayer. And, you know, he's telling them that I do all of this in my prayer. I mean, that's next level. I mean, Sheikh Ehlan used to speak about that. He goes, listen, as we've heard so many times, when you become like Omar, then you just do that. No problem. Because you've got Lala Yani saying, yeah, can I do my taxes? And can I do my things in prayer? Bro, you. You, you should pray just Qulhullah Ahad and get out of there. Do you know what I'm saying? Go on, go on. You know, you know, you just said that. You know, you just said that, right? How much does that play into a part right now? I am currently dealing with a proper fitna in a. I'm not going to. No, no, not this one. Not this guy. <laughs> not this guy. This guy created on fitna. No, um, I would just say a mosque for all intents and purposes. No, that's, that's not right. That's not right. <laughs> no, no. Uh, I can't say mosque because you won't understand. Um, I'll say a musalla, a musalla that has an imam that is not qualified in the uh, Quran in, at any level, neither recitation, neither, but is the most practicing person there, the one who set it up. Okay, exactly. And now the people have come in and they are. No, 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 no. And, and, and. Because uh, I'm linking it to your point about um, personal battles. And I'm, I gave the ruling that I'm quite comfortable for him to continue. Quite comfortable for him to continue because the tajweed is enough. And the thing is enough because actually he's the glue which is holding the thing together. And he's the actual guy who's a proper practicing one, even though he's not great in anything. But he's got the heart. He's got a significant problem though. And that problem is, is that he is full of doubts in his prayer. To the extent that he led the prayer, young folks, and after 10, 20 seconds in, in the middle of Fatiha, he just turns around and he goes, guys, I can't do this anymore, and just walks off. So now I have a situation where I said, well, I mean, that's it. It's game over, isn't it? Guy came back and he goes, no, no, that was, I was just having a bad day. I am the one who's going to lead the prayer. And now we've got this mega fitness. So, 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 so this is this goes to show, even though you said the question maybe not semi not semi seriously, it is actually a serious thing. There are imams that have personal kind of issues. But that, that, that's a different issue from him having riyah. I mean, no, no, uh, uh, no, no. It's the same. It's uh, it's uh, well, if, if, if not riyah. I mean, personal personal challenges. That's what I mean. He's got a personal challenge. His challenge is he won't turn around and walks away when No, no, but why though? Because he, no, no, because he allowed shaitan and waswas to convince him that he wasn't in the right raka'ah. He's fighting it, fighting it, fighting it. And he's basically said, I can't deal with this right now. 
Like inside, I don't even know right now that I'm leading you in the right rakah or right prayer. And he just basically cut, pulled out. Now, that might be the right thing to do at that time because he's just overwhelmed. The point is though, he's now come back and he said, listen, nobody here is here like I am. I'm the one who is the most uh, uh, thingy. He's the one that's most respected by the people, even though he can't recite and he can't whatever. This is a difficult situation. What I Yes. Let's talk about practice. Like, when <coughs> the brothers turn up, yep. we're all going to do jamaat. Yeah. Okay. We have no idea yep. about anybody. Yes. And normally, what happens is they, oh, you've got the longest beard. Yes. Yes. Right? Yes. So, from a practice perspective, <laughs> it's what happens. It is. It is. Longest beard always wins. What responsibility does everybody in that congregation have to actually seek out how much time and effort are we meant to take? What's the responsibility? You're not. It's as simple as that. Because if it was, it just nothing. It would. We don't. We don't work. It's not a, a practical. It's there is a general understanding that people have to have some personal responsibility. But if, if somebody's here and they know that they are qualified, oh, I, I mean, don't, I don't know if the guy with the beard is qualified. Yeah, yeah, no, no. Uh, uh, so, 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 what I'm saying is that these most of the time these situations, right, are more interesting to talk about in theory than in practice. In practice. But how many times uh, uh, and and, and uh, on, on, uh, honestly, count those times. And you will find that most of the time it didn't matter. Why? Most of the time it didn't matter. Why? Because you got through the prayer? No, because I didn't come across a fatal mistake in the guy who went forward and, and prayed. Now, I've got more experience than you. Why? Because when you're in a Muslim country, then all the, the like, for us in the West, this is only happening in airports or the odd place here and there. In a Muslim country, it's happening in every mall every prayer time, every day, right? It's the same, random person going forward and, in the prayer, and a decision being made on what basis, etc. And of course, beard and clothes is the key kind of indicator. But when I assess all of these scenarios, pretty much most of the time, the person who knows that they're probably gonna be the one that knows something in this will put themselves forward generally, or they will be a two or a three, a group of people, and one of them definitely knows, and with that very intense kind of lead the prayer, everybody else just recognizes there's something here already. So in practice, this doesn't happen as much as the theory. So then we're kind of writing this off, are we not? Are we not? But, um, if we're saying that as long as we get, we tick the boxes, we're okay. Yeah, and that's why I said that I do honestly think these arguments are semantic at the end of the day. I, I think that when it, when it all comes out in a wash, we generally get an idea of uh, what's going on. All right, we'll call it, let's do questions like, oh, I think we've called it already. And we, we, and we haven't done the questions. We've got questions yet? I don't call it All right, well, I won't definitely call it, and we, I'll just focus on questions. Can a woman pray behind a non-mahram man if there's no one else around? That shouldn't happen because that's isolation. That's an isolation situation. They should avoid that. Well, that's also another point, but she's saying the hospital room, which is, as we know, that they're, they're tiny, and that that that, that you've, got, you've, got barriers. you've got barriers. Now, now here's a problem: if we start to say that you know a woman should wait outside and before a man goes in and whatever, whatnot, then we're going to create a whole whatever. So, what I want to say, I want to differ. I want I want people to listen carefully to my answer. I want to differentiate between what should not happen and what. You, what will allow to occur. We shouldn't intentionally be trying to create a fatwa that allows it unrestrictedly, 
versus that uh, saying to a woman that when you go in and you find a man, you've got to come straight out. Does that make sense? There's a difference between legislating that it's okay for a woman to pray behind a non-mahram man all the time, which I won't say, which no scholar will say, versus that if a woman goes in, she can't go in to pray. I don't want to say that because that's the same as a woman and a man, can they be alone in an elevator? Answer is no, they can't. When a woman is in the elevator, does a man have to wait for the next lift before he goes in? No, he doesn't. There's a difference between the two, even though in actual fact it sounds contradictory. Does that make sense? Exactly. It sounds different. The first one is legislating for a permanent state all the time. The second one is saying that if a, you find yourself in the situation, yani, fajatan, it happens, you do not have to have the guy... So for example, the woman walks in, maybe she's aware, not aware, and the man now has to, is obligated to get out. Why would the man have to get out? Well, that, that's if she doesn't know, if she does know. Okay, but this is my point. But, but, but this is my point, yani, the difference, that's the difference between giving a formal fatwa <laughs> and saying this is an established position versus individuals dealing with a scenario that comes up. So a man should generally try to avoid being in a situation where there's a woman or, or whatever. And by the way, um, uh, this cannot be a ruling because isolation is different as well. So uh, 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 in our modern time, there's a big discussion about what a window is. Right? How much of a window and how big a size of a window actually establishes what we call isolation or khalwa, right? A khalwa itself, like in a car, for example. Now, scholars have allowed uh, a, 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 a woman and a man to be alone in a car because of need and necessity and so on and so forth. Now, they're not happy to do that, but they allow themselves to do that because they believe that there's enough of windows in a car that would make it difficult for the isolation issues and threats to be negated. The truth is they're not negated. You can lock doors and this and that and overpower people and blah blah blah. So there's always going to be this, but we don't want to make a rule on the exception. We want to make a rule on what we think is probable. And likewise, the lift, we don't want to establish, this is my personal opinion, I don't want to establish a rule for the lift when I know that in reality, in practice, the isolation in a lift is very minimal for things to happen or possibilities. And therefore, culture, from an earth point of view, does not consider a man and a woman in a lift alone to be isolation. Simply because the maximum it can be is like 20 seconds or 15 seconds before, and the fact that there's always the possibility that someone will stop the lift on the next floor. And that these factors change the kind of legal status of the lift. Wallahu ta'ala uh, a'lam. Uh, okay, I, don't, I can't see um, any other uh, questions online. Oh, sorry. If a husband has very poor tajweed, wrong makharij, and the wife has better tajweed, is it better for the wife not to pray behind the husband until he gets better at tajweed? So we want to make it clear that this is not tajweed. All right? Tajweed is making your Quran sound nice and fulfilling certain factors which are not essential to qira'ah. Like mudud, like knowing the four harakat and six harakat and all that bid'ah that people like man spend their whole life with. Okay? This is something which is not yani, from the requirements of recitation. Makhraj, makhraj uh, uh, the right makhraj is what is. 
the 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 da, the da, the you know, that needs to be right, otherwise you're changing meanings. If my guy can't do that, then she shouldn't be praying behind him. She shouldn't be praying behind him. Praying behind her. She should, he shouldn't be praying behind her either. Okay? I know that you want to any proper form you under the thingy. Yeah? So Zara is saying the class position, prayer for women more rewarded in the mosque if no reason for her to stay at home. Yes, that is my position. That the yep, I'm 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 gonna down that hill. Uh, and good luck to them. That the prayer in the mosque is more rewarded for a woman if there's no reason. However, caveat, I have not seen a woman be able to produce that situation where she can't find a reason to pray at home that would make the prayer better for her at home. That was a line that everyone's like shocked yeah, and they tried to unpack that statement. No? Everyone's confused. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense what I said? Women like, nope, you just, you just did this over there. You said he could do it, but he can't do it. No, you see, that's how you read it. I said that a woman's prayer, if there's absolutely no reason for her to pray at home, will be more rewarded being prayed in the masjid. Because the, woman, the, pray, the masjid is for women and men, and that's my belief. And that's not the belief of the majority. But then I added a caveat, and I said, however, in our time right now, there will always be a reason that a woman can find to pray at home that will make it more rewarded. I just don't believe the no reason concept is there anymore. That's my point. I think today being what it is and everything that it is, I think that the women of today can find plenty of reasons to justify the prayer, their prayer at home to be more rewarded. And Allah knows best. Sorry, Sheikh. Yes. In my local masjid, um, the women's entrance, even though it's, it's not like Americans. Yeah. <coughs> the entrances for the women is close. Like a dark alley. Yeah. Separate entrance, completely cut off from the men's kind of floor. Yeah. <coughs> so in that instance, would she be required to pray in the mist? No, no. Prayer never obligated upon a woman. Prayer is never obligated upon a woman in the masjid. I mean, women got all excited there for a second. <laughs> that was an important clarification. Yeah. You know when you, you point about what you just made about masjid or, or praying at home for the women? Yeah. Is that sometimes because of, it's a, at home it's a known safety where the unpredictability may be This is my point. My, my, my point is especially today, um, um, you will always be able to find a reason to justify praying at home and for her to get more reward for it. I just do not want to be that person that's going to be justifying to men that you've got to believe. I don't want men to... Culturally, I think men have got to press the reset button and understand this point that they have to stop thinking that women are going to be as practicing as they are just by listening to bloody lectures online and videos and staying at home. And if we don't fix this, then we're going to have an even we're going to have a doubling of the divorce rate that we've got because we're just getting this disparity of men and women. Men are out there, bros, this, that, regular. They, you know, see things, experience things. You know, subhanAllah, people become practicing just by living life. And women have this kind of, you know, fractured other type of whatever. And, you know, honest to God, honest to God, it's a miracle that there are as many practicing women that they are. And part of that miracle is the same reason why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَذَّاكِرِينَ اللَّهَ كَثِيرًا وَذَّاكِرَاتٍ that's the 
That's the proof right there that intrinsically women are better at making dhikr and being in ibadah than Allah, that, of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala than men. And that a woman in her natural state is equal to a man at his extreme state, an intense state. That was a fact. Allah knows best. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Right? So at what point does the growth of the community where you don't have a Muslim majority, you've got a Muslim minority, and you need to get society built up, and if all the better Muslims get killed, it becomes about flourishing. Yeah, yeah. I think there's no doubt that any form of advanced, better, active masjid is only because of that they've sorted the woman issue out as a priority. And uh, like I said, uh, uh, I... I, I, I will never understand the, the idea that the way that women are... I mean, even here, just look at this, right? I mean, I, we actually widened this. The other day when we prayed, there was more women in here, in this little dinku thing here, than the men who are here. Do you remember when we did our jama'ah here? Right? It's crazy. I mean, the whole thing, it genuinely needs... Just every level needs resetting. Sorry, yeah, it was here. Yeah. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Man, you're talking about, but boy, yeah, 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 yeah. And we'll speak about age and everything next week, inshallah. All right, guys, barakallahu fiqh, back in Shiro next week. Same time, though, uh, online and on site, uh, 7.50 p.m. UK. Jazakumullah khair, subhanakallahumma bihamdik. Ashhadu an la ilaha illa ant wa astaghfirukallahumma wa atubu ilayk. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.